Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. If you're going to buy a property for yourself or a small partnership, I wouldn't recommend just throwing a few dollars together. I would recommend waiting and, and kind of saving those dollars until there's a substantial amount. Before we get into today's episode, are you a fix and flipper who needs some money? Do you need to maybe do more deals and you're limited by the funds you have available? Well then, Fund That Flip, today's best ever sponsor, has a solution for you. And you know Fund That Flip, right? You're a loyal best ever listener. The founder, Matt Rodak, he's been on the show multiple times. And they have been a previous sponsor and they love working with the best ever listeners. And they provide short-term fix and flip loans to experienced investors. They've got an online platform, makes the entire process super easy, and you can get funded in as few as seven days. So if you're looking for a reliable funding partner, go to fundthatflip.com and mention that, well, you heard about it on the best ever show. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff with us today, Dave Sobelman. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing great. Nice to have you on the show and glad you're doing great. A little bit about Dave. He is the founder and CEO of Generation Income Properties, which is a public net lease REIT. He's the founder of NetLease Brokerage Firm, Three Properties. He's managed more than 1,000 single-tenant NetLease transactions and has been involved in about $10 billion in transactions based in Tampa, Florida. With that being said, Dave, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Thank you so much. When you go through my brief bio, I can't believe where we've come. I started my career at the very bottom. I was a research analyst for a national commercial real estate brokerage firm where I sat in a cube. No one talked to me. (laughs) The cube was far away from everyone, and they just wanted me to crunch numbers. And it was one day when someone came up to me about eight months after I started and asked me my first question in that analyst role. And that's when I knew that people started to value my work and my opinion. And so since then, I've had a sole focus strictly on triple net lease investments throughout the entire country. Like you said, I've done about $10 billion in transactions in the last 15 years. And it's been really interesting to see how having that sole focus has been extremely accretive to not only the companies that I've started, but also the industry itself. 
I was an anomaly back 15 years ago when I was solely focused on this one property type because net lease properties truly just were an ancillary investment at that point. A lot of shopping center owners had these out parcel locations like a McDonald's or a Burger King or something like that. They didn't really treat them as an investment or I should say an industry in and of itself. And so when someone like me came along and said, I'm only going to focus on these single tenant triple net lease assets, we kind of took the market by storm at that point. For anyone not familiar with what you mean when you say single tenant triple net lease, will you just quickly define that? The stereotypical example of a single tenant commercial triple net lease property is your average neighborhood Walgreens drugstore. And most people know what that means. There's one parcel of land. There's one building. The building was built specifically for Walgreens in this instance. There's one lease. A lot of people don't know that Walgreens, in this case, doesn't own a lot of their real estate. They lease it from people who build these buildings for them. And the leases are very long. In their case, they're 75 years. They have options to terminate after 25 years, but even 25 years is a long time. Walgreens is a big public company, and they have what's called an investment-grade credit rating, meaning that they don't have a lot of debt, and they're a strong and sound credit-worthy company. So putting these factors together, real estate, good credit tenants, long-term leases, and you get the makings of a good investment. Now, why they're called triple net leases is... And this may be strange for some people to hear, but the three nets are taxes, maintenance, and insurance. Those three attributes of the operations of the property are the tenant's responsibility, not the landlord. So the landlord, in essence, is passive from a day-to-day operational perspective. So these triple net leases are actually very common around the country. And a lot of people don't know that, but you can be a somewhat passive landlord. I put parentheses around somewhat because (laughs) no real estate is passive altogether, but this takes away changing light bulbs and fixing toilets and so on. Ideally, we're all doing that, not changing light bulbs. Ideally, we all have triple net lease tenants. And so the perception that I have, and I know you're going to educate me otherwise, is that there's not as much money in buying these types of properties because they're, and again, you're going to probably punch me in the face when I say this, it's easier to do triple net lease, to buy them, and you're not going to make as much money. So what did I just say that was incorrect? There's definitely a stigma on the properties that when you have lower risk, lower amount of responsibilities, that your yield is lower. And in some cases, that's very much true. So I wouldn't disagree with that at all. So when you're getting into higher risk properties, let's say buying vacant buildings or vacant land that you have to develop, your returns will be higher, but you are taking more risk. So these are probably one of the best risk adjusted returns that an investor can get real estate or otherwise. And let me quantify that for you somewhat. Let's just continue using our Walgreens example. 
if you were to purchase a Walgreens drugstore as a triple net lease real estate investment, your return today would probably be around six, maybe a little bit lower, maybe up to seven. And that's a percent return. Okay. Yep. So, so if you're getting that 6% return, you have Walgreens as your tenant for 25 years, you get the depreciation of the building. If you have a loan, you get to deduct the interest expense on that loan. Now, let's say you want to buy a bond. And a lot of people know that bonds are very conservative. Bonds are based on the guarantor of that bond. So let's say we buy a Walgreens corporate bond. Today, that bond is still guaranteed by the exact same company that's occupying the Walgreens drugstore. The term could be the exact same, 25 years. And obviously, the credit of the company is the exact same as the tenant who is occupying that building. But if you were to buy that bond, you are probably getting a 3% or 3.5% return. Mm -hmm. So you have multiple hundreds of basis points difference in buying a net lease property versus their corporate bond. Now, if you're comparing it to higher risk real estate investments, Yes, they are on the lower end of things, but from a risk-adjusted basis, they are actually tremendous investments. With your REIT, is your, I hate to say elevator pitch because I don't pitch things and I know you don't either, but your short and sweet value proposition, basically that it's, hey, you're likely going to get a better return than buying a bond and you have a collateralized asset. No, that's not my value proposition at all, because having a public REIT, there's a tremendous amount of disclosure and transparency. And that's one of the things I like about the REIT is, is just telling the public everything. And one thing I like to say is that my REIT, Generation Income Properties, is not a new concept. I'm not the first triple net lease REIT. In fact, there are 14 other triple net lease REITs that are currently trading all on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, each one of those REITs has their own strategy within this niche product type. So some people say we're strictly going to buy retail properties or we're strictly going to buy net lease office properties or industrial properties. Or some of the REITs, they'll say we don't want to buy any credit worthy tenants whatsoever. So we will never have a Walgreens using that example in our portfolio. We only want to buy much higher risk credit tenants because our returns are higher. And then different variations on everything I just said. Okay. So the difference between generation income properties and the other 14 net lease REITs is that GIP focuses on the real estate. Now, let me tell you what that means. When someone goes to buy a net lease property, typically they're looking at the credit of the tenant and how long the lease is because they want to make sure that their investment can actually pay them income, pay their rent for as long a period as possible. And that's great. But you are buying that Walgreens that we're using as an example in Midtown Manhattan or in Dubuque, Iowa. With all due respect to Dubuque, Iowa, <laughs> there's probably a drastic difference in the valuation of the real estate than Midtown Manhattan. So Generation Income Properties puts the real estate underwriting first because what we want to do is increase the value of that real estate during our ownership. And ultimately what that means is not only do we get paid this rent from these investment grade credit tenants with long-term leases, but 
there's a much higher probability of that property appreciation during our ownership. And being a public company, if you do have appreciation of your assets, then the assets or net asset value of the entire company increases. And ultimately what happens is the stock price increases along with it. And so I'm treating generation income properties as a growth company, much more so than just a dividend machine, which all the other net lease REITs provide. They Mm -hmm. want to tell their investors, their shareholders, if you invest with us, we will pay you a 4% return and we'll pay you every quarter or every month, however it is. So a lot of people like that. They like that consistency. But I also provide that same market dividend but I'm also giving the shareholders a much higher probability of increasing the stock price by buying only in the top 20 highest density cities in the country, like New York, LA, Atlanta, Washington, DC, and so on. Mm -hmm. And they're all listed on my website, the top 20 cities. How do you increase the value of a triple net lease property? Just as I stated, by buying good real estate, because most people derive the value of a net lease property from the credit of the tenant and the length of the lease. And what ultimately happens is the price is derived based on a return, which is called a capitalization rate or a cap rate. So when I mentioned the 6% return from the Walgreens earlier in the conversation, that's what people like to see. I'm going to get a 6% return on my money and I'm comfortable with that. And that's just based solely on the income. And they're not really looking at increasing the value of the real estate. And that's done strictly through higher density, better demographics, tough to invest markets, and just what we call barriers to entry. And that's what we focus on because history has proven that you can quantifiably increase the value of a property by buying in these core markets. Okay, so you're not doing anything to the property. You're identifying the right place to buy the property. And then based on historic data, the property will appreciate because of the area that it's in. Very much so. So our very first asset was purchased in Washington, D.C., just north of the White House. The tenant is 7-Eleven. Not super sexy, not exciting. Most people will go get their Slurpee or their hot dog or their drink from there but they have a double A minus standard and poor's credit rating. It's one of the highest credit ratings there is. The federal government by comparison is double A plus. So they're not too far off from a credit perspective. This property was brand new construction. It was the ground floor commercial condominium of a brand new construction residential condominium building. It's in the middle of everything. It took them four years to build this property just because it's so difficult to build in Washington, D.C. 7-Eleven has a 10-year lease. That's triple net. And not many people would have the opportunity to buy this. In fact, this didn't even go on the market because the seller contacted me directly. Another value proposition for the read is just my reputation in the industry allows me opportunity or access to different properties that most people wouldn't. So that property is a great example of buying in the middle of everything. And it's hard to buy in Washington, DC. We have properties under contract in Tampa, Florida, about to be Atlanta, Georgia, just very core markets that typically appreciate in value much faster than secondary and tertiary markets of the country. 
other than the 20 highest density cities, what are some specific benchmarks that you look for in demographics for where you buy? The easy ones to look for are just income, this number of people. I look at the trends as well. Are the trends going up or down? And then I actually visit each property I go to so to get a feel of it. So let's take this Atlanta property that I just mentioned. It's occupied by SunTrust Bank, which if some of your listeners don't know, uh, public company Standard & Poor's credit rating of A, and they are headquartered in Atlanta. So this is a, a prime site for them. I actually went to the site. I live just above another commercial condo, triple net lease to SunTrust. I rented an apartment that's just above this building, and I actually embedded myself in the community for a period of time so I can see. How long? One night, two full days, <laughs> two full days. You made uh, it sound like uh, uh, six months or a year. Or oh, no, 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 for sure. I, <laughs> I, I still want my wife to like me. <laughs> All right, so you spent the night there. Okay. <laughs> but seeing the property at different points of the day is really important because a lot of people go to a property one time, they drive by it, they don't go inside. They just see, yes, it does exist, and then they're comfortable from that point on. I take a much different approach where I like to see it during morning hours, during lunchtime traffic where people are out getting their lunches, in the evenings after they've left work, what's the nightlife looking like, and so on. So there's lots of different ways to diligence a property from a physical perspective, and that's something that I take very seriously. Drilling a little bit deeper on specifics, you said you look at the income, the number of people, trends going up and down. Can you give us some specifics as far as what income do you look at? What number of how many people, 20, 5 million, 300,000, and what specific trends? I don't have specific numbers because every market is different. So Washington, D.C. actually has higher density than Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm not talking about the suburbs of Atlanta either. I'm talking about Atlanta proper, downtown Atlanta. So the densities are just different. So I don't have threshold numbers. We take up to 100 different variables into account in any one property. Are all 100 weighted equally? No. What's weighted the most? Just appreciative value. So what is the potential to appreciate the value of this site? That's the most important variable. But if we're getting into the minutia of underwriting, then we can look at, is the property on a corner or is it mid-block? What's the access to the property? Is it good or is it bad? Does the property have parking? If it doesn't have parking, like a lot of these dense properties, they don't have parking at all, then how do people access this property and how do they get to this property? What can we reuse this property for? So even though I'm telling you a great story right now that we're buying properties occupied by these tremendous companies, I'm always looking at the asset from the worst case scenario because what we've learned during the last recession is even great companies go out of business. Kmart used to be a great company. Circuit City used to be a great company. Blockbuster was a great company. And what we learned is even though they were a great credit-worthy company, we had to start learning how to reuse their real estate. In a lot of cases, that's happening. Blockbuster is probably the best case scenario in that. 
So even though they went bankrupt and vacated all of their thousands of locations around the country, a lot of them were in great locations. So those landlords who owned those assets were able to either sell them or completely reposition them with different tenants, maybe retrofitting them for different use or allowing the tenant to retrofit them at their own expense for a different use. So there's just so many different ways to look at an asset and you really don't do that unless you're spending a decent amount of time there. Based on your experience for a best ever listener who's listening to this and thinking, boy, I I like what you're saying and I want to get in on some triple net lease single tenant properties. What's your best advice ever for them as they start out? Well, first of all, they're expensive. So if you're going to buy a property for yourself or a small partnership, I wouldn't recommend just throwing a few dollars together. I would recommend waiting and and kind of saving those dollars until there's a substantial amount. And that substantial amount could be two to $3 million. And if you want to get into the net lease business and have some exposure in your own account to net lease properties, that's what REITs are set up for, where you can buy shares of the REIT that's focused on the net lease properties themselves, and then you can have your exposure that way. Typically, if someone approached me during a brokerage transaction where they wanted me to represent them to purchase an asset. And they said, let's say I have $500,000, which you and I both know the value of a dollar. And we both know that that's a tremendous amount of money, but in the scheme of a net lease investment, it's a very low dollar amount. Mm -hmm. So the quality of the asset that they would be purchasing at those low dollar amounts would not be worth the risk that they would be taking. So I would either encourage them to put a lot of people together at $500,000 each or to kind of spread their risk and get the diversification of a REIT that's focused on this. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's go. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. You want to get better at negotiating real estate? Well, how about do you want to get better at negotiating real estate for free? Even better, right? Well, go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has partnered with best-selling author Jay Scott to provide you with a free chapter from Jay's new book on negotiating real estate. I've read the book. Lots of good real-world case studies sprinkled in there too. I love it when they do that. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever to download your free copy of the chapter today. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com. Best ever book you've read? Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. That's essentially my life story. Best ever deal you've done? Probably a 17-property portfolio occupied by Haverty's Furniture in 10 different states at the value of about $55 million. And why is that the best ever deal? Well, number one, the scale of it. Number two, it was very early in my career, so it was very meaningful to me. How do you make money on these deals? My best advice to people who truly want to make money on net lease properties is to make sure that you hold them for generations. Hence the name of my REIT, Generation Income Properties. You want to have that sort of outlook. 
So you will get paid during your ownership of this property. That's what the tenant's there for. That's what the rent is there for. But you want to make sure that you're holding it for a long period of time so you can make a lot of money. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Probably early in my career, this is an asset that I still own because it's not saleable. And I just jumped at a opportunity, what I thought to be a well-priced net lease property. And it turns out that the tenant was very poor. They vacated the property. We got a second tenant in there. They were very poor. They vacated the property. All of that happened within a few years of each other. And now the property's location is what I would call a tertiary market. So there are so few tenants who truly want to be in this asset. It's really a lesson that I learned. To your point, my worst deal ever, that real estate, the actual location, does matter. Best ever way you like to give back? My wife and I have a family foundation called the Wellspring Fund that focuses on children and exposing them to other children that may be a little bit different than themselves. So whether it has to do with nationality, race, religion, ethnicity, we really focus our philanthropy through our family foundation. How can the best ever listeners either get in touch with you or learn more about your company or REIT? G-I-P-R-E-I-T dot com. That's the website for the REIT. And all of our contact information is there. There's a video about me. You can hear me talking about the REIT. And I actually personally respond to every email and every phone call. It's actually one of my great pleasures is educating people about the REIT and introducing them to that. And so all of the investors who are in the REIT now, they've all had personal interactions with me, which I very much appreciate. Dave, thank you for being on the show and talking about your positioning within the REIT space, how everyone is looking for that angle, some only retail focus, industrial office, some no credit worthy tenants because they want a little bit higher risk for better returns. Your focus is on the real estate itself and the appreciation of that real estate based on the location of where it is and how it's positioned in that particular sub-market. And then all the lessons learned along the way. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com.